Alright everybody, this is Thomas Boer, and Happy New Year! Uh, it is 7-11, December 31st, 2016, and tomorrow, for Sunday School, I will be going through the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 25. Um, two weeks ago, I went through uh, questions 23 through 24. Um, I've been on break and had a lot of other things actually to get done, so I haven't had a lot of time to look over uh, my material until today, really. So I thought, well, while I'm review reviewing all this, why not record it and uh, see if it helps anybody else um, in the process. So what I want to do is basically go over questions 23, 24, but especially 25, since that's what I'll be focusing on for... Uh, tomorrow. I do have an outline here with me that I'll be using. I'll kind of just run through that uh, for questions 23 and 24 and then uh, elaborate more on question 25. So question 23 of the Westminster Larger Catechism reads, Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? In other words, what was man's uh, condition uh, once he fell into sin? And the answer is, the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. So, sin and misery is the focus here. What is sin? Well, that is going to be question 24. Um, and as I've went through this last, uh, well, two weeks ago, it's kind of hard to describe the answer to question 23 when you have not yet actually defined sin, and I'll go ahead and do that. Question 24, what is sin? The answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. So sin is either not doing what God commands that we should do or doing that which God forbids us to do. And it is a rule given to us by God to uh, his people, to, well, to all people, to every reasonable creature. We all have the capacity to understand and to uh, process God's word and his laws and his commandments, um, obviously assuming we're not mentally handicapped or infants. Uh, and so with our faculties, we are to obey God and to serve him. Uh, he has created us. He made us. He owns us. He has every right to demand uh, that we serve him wholeheartedly. And this wholehearted service to God is not God being a bully, but is actually commanding uh, for us the very best because God is, in fact, um, the most infinitely glorious being, the only truly glorious being that there is. And so for God to command us, uh, to do anything other than glorify him <clears throat> and live for him would be to actually slight us because we're made in his image and we're being made in his image we are made to find delight and satisfaction and happiness in his image in bearing his image well in serving him and obeying him and so he commands us to obey him because he is worthy but that also comes with it delight in him because he's the most delightful and worthy being that there is and a worthy being, a being worthy of praise, is also a being that in the praising of him will bring delight. Otherwise, he would not be truly worthy. 
Anyways, that's actually looking a bit more at question 24 there, but that does help us understand the estate of sin and misery that we are in. We do not obey God. We transgress God's law. And to transgress God's law then is to basically um, not bear his image well. In fact, it's to uh, bear the image of the devil who rebelled uh, as Lucifer, as an angel, and fell and became Satan, uh, was an angel of light, and has now become uh, darkness and wickedness. And we are, uh, First John says, if we are outside of Christ, uh, if we are not saved, then we are children of the devil. Everyone is either, either a child of God or a child of the devil. And this is a spiritual reality. Our very souls, the very core of our being, uh, is either covered by the blood of Christ and renewed and transformed into the image of God because we've fallen into sin and we've lost that. We've lost uh, not the fact that we are image bearers of God in total, uh, but the ability to bear that image righteously. But Christ uh, renews that through his spirit in us, and we are restored to the image of God so that we can now obey and serve him from the heart because he gives us a new heart. He gives us a heart that longs to love and follow and serve him. But apart from that regenerated state, apart from being born again, we are enslaved to sin. So this state of sin and misery is an enslavement to sin that in fact does bring absolute misery. Some verses that the Westminster Divines used for this, Romans 5.12 says, Whereas, or I should say, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. When Adam fell, all his posterity fell in and with him. Um, that's, well, I want to save this for question 25, but that's reasonable because we are, in fact, literally uh, the offspring of, of Adam. We all sin, we have all inherited a sinful nature, and because of that, we produce the fruits of that sinful nature, which is sin. And the wages of sin, the punishment for sin, of law-breaking, of rebelling against God, is death. And so death comes to all men, for we have all sinned, and we have all sinned. Why? Because we we are all born with a sinful nature inherited from Adam. And... Well, again, for the sake of keeping these things in order, let's just continue to Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And a couple weeks ago, I looked at Romans 3, verses 9 through 20, which is just prior to that, which says that all men, the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, are all confined under sin, under the law, uh, condemned by it. No one does good. No one seeks after God. We've all turned astray. Uh, We speak lies. There's murder and envy and bitterness in our hearts. And uh, no one does good. No one seeks after God. And so if you go to a church, if you've seen churches that, you know, they're targeting unbelievers who are searching for the truth or searching for Christ or searching for salvation, um, their theology, their understanding of the sinful state, the estate of sin and misery into which man fell wrongly. They do not understand that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, which we'll look at that passage a bit in Ephesians in a second. Uh, They don't understand that. They believe man is more a victim than a guilty party for the sins that they commit, and that they have still enough goodness in them, uh, enough light in them, or at least enough sort of conviction by a conscience or something to be looking for the truth, to be looking for God. And so you have actually this terrible teaching that, you know, some people will go to hell um, because they simply did not have um, the external gospel preached to them, even though they were looking for it. 
so that it was just a matter of you know not lining up a good teacher or preacher with somebody's sincere sincere heart seeking God, and so because there wasn't the truth delivered to them, didn't have a Bible or whatever, well they go to hell. They wanted the truth, they didn't quite get there, so they go to hell. Well, no, the Bible says um, that is there's no scenario such as that because man is dead in his sins. Nobody seeks God. God has to change the heart before man will truly seek him from the heart for the right reason in faith and repentance, submitting to his lordship for salvation. Uh, Romans 6 teaches this bondage to sin. It says that we are enslaved to sin. Even Paul says in Romans 7, verses 7 through 24, that the Christian struggles against sin mightily and is in a miserable condition. Paul says in Romans 7, that which I hate and I believe he's speaking here as somebody who's already born again and saved, that which I hate, that I do, and that which I don't want to do, um, I do it, that which I, <laughs> you know, he, he, he just keeps going in this circle. Um, I don't do what I want, and I do what I don't want to do, basically, is what Paul is saying. He says there's a, this law, you know, the law, the lust of the flesh. Uh, Galatians 5 speaks of warring against the spirit, uh, and Paul in Romans 7 uh, puts it a little bit differently. I believe he says, in my mind, um, uh, which is it? I think in my mind I serve the law of God, but in my heart the law of sin. I should look that up just to make sure. Um, let's see. It says, For I, de- I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. This is verse 22 of Romans 7. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying Christ delivers us from this body of death. Christ has delivered us from this struggle. Um, Not in total yet. That will be only when Christ returns. Um, And some will take that, I believe, as proving that Paul is not yet regenerate and that Christ, you know, or Paul's not speaking as if he was still not saved yet, but he has been saved from the struggle. Um, I I don't agree with that because... Every Christian I know that's honest um, and, and reflects on their own heart realizes there's a war, a spiritual war going on to fight against sin and that it's a struggle and it's not easy um, and uh, that we long for that final redemption where our bodies and, and the, the members, uh, the lust of the flesh, the, the temptations that well up from within us, and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and all this kind of stuff that the Bible speaks of, uh, that these bodily sinful impulses would be removed and that we would not have them and something that tempts us from within that, that, but that we would no longer be tempted at all so that we would not even have the possibility of giving in the temptation, at least internal temptation, uh, because it's not a reality anymore in heaven. Of course, there'll be no external temptation in heaven either uh, because we'll all be righteous and everything will be renewed. And then Paul concludes at the end of Romans 7, So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. His mind, his heart is set on God, but there's this fallenness still. The redemption of the body is not yet complete, and it's still lust for the flesh, and he can be persuaded by that. He still has in his own heart um, uh, the capacity to do sin, to uh, commit uh, law-breaking, covenant-breaking. And we all do as Christians, sadly. But um, before we're Christians, what struggle do we truly make against sin? None. Again, no one does good. No one seeks God. No one from the heart, from faith, does good as an act of service to God for his glory until they are a Christian. 
And that's how sinful, that's how radically wicked and fallen we are. That's our estate of sin and misery. Of course, this, this brings a cycle of violence we see throughout Scripture. Cain and Abel, um, Cain killing Abel, the great flood, uh, and, and the wickedness in the world that precipitated the flood, that led God to uh, bring down the flood. Ah, precipitate, right? Precipitation. Now you see what I did there. That was an accident. Um, no pun intended. Uh, the military conquests of pagan nations throughout, well, history, um, but especially in the scripture, um, even those that attacked Israel were still wicked, even though God used them to punish his chosen people, to chastise them. Um, the warring, the, the bloodshed, the, the pillaging, the raping of the women, uh, the plagues of Egypt uh, being poured out because of Pharaoh's uh, obstinance and, uh, of course, the affliction that that caused because of the wickedness of, of man, uh, the Egyptians, Israel's idolatry and banishment from the promised land for not remaining faithful to God, but turning back to the idols that they wanted to worship. King David's adultery and murder, the crucifixion of Christ itself, of course, being something which is the greatest sin, killing the Lord of glory, murdering the Lord of glory. Um, the martyrdom of the apostles who do seek to serve Christ and proclaim the gospel and any martyr that comes about today as well, etc., etc. Uh, the Bible from first to last is a record really of, yes, redemption and salvation and love and peace on earth, but frankly, even more so of the radical sinfulness of man in that miserable condition that man is in. Think about our own country. Think about our own nation. It's supposed to be the greatest nation in the world, and I think in many ways it has been and still is, and yet, um, well, I, I had the opportunity to preach on Christmas Day and uh, I, you know, I prayed prior to that and, and kept my eyes open in case there'd be any kind of attempted terrorist attack. Uh, that's the world that we live in, in this state of sin and misery. And it's not as if um, the sin and misery are separated. To live in sin is misery. It is death, not just because God punishes us with death, but that if you are just given over to your sin, it will lead into a cycle of greater and greater uh, misery and why is that? Well, it's the contrary, contrariety. It's the opposite of uh, God, of His goodness, of His truth. Is a violation of His very being and nature. We're made in His image. When we sin, we violate the image of God, which is to say, we violate, we we go against His very essence, His nature, and the the, the nature that we are supposed to live with and live by. Um, and so that, that leads to destruction. It destroys the fabric of society. It destroys the family. It gives people over to homosexuality. Um, and yes, God uh, punishes with disease and sickness in general just because of the curse of sin. Um, but supposing he even didn't do that, just allowing us to be susceptible to death, if he gave us over to our sin, um, there would be no society. If he did not restrain our evil, uh, there would be uh, unmitigated uh, self-destruction of wickedness, murderings and rapings and pillagings and stealing and, and no personal property or privacy or anything. Um, no trust, no marriage covenants being made because there would only be infidelity. Um, that's the reality of sin. So it affects every area of our life, even in the subtle, seemingly mundane things like impatience with our children or spouse, uh, the misery of having uh, colds and sickness in the winter, sickness, disease, ultimately death itself. All of that is the misery that is brought about by sin. And so we're dead in our sins. We cannot do good. 
We cannot will good unless God first wills it in our heart and transforms us, renews us, restores us, supernaturally gives us new life by the Spirit which works in us. And even then we still struggle against sin and struggle with misery. And as I said, sin is anyone of conformity unto a transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. First John 3, 4 says, Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Galatians 3, 10 and 12, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And the law is not of faith, but, quote, The man that does them shall live by them. So man's always been under God's law. Uh, Adam and Eve were reasonable creatures. They were created to fill the earth and subdue it. They were created reasonable. They were created under God. They were never separate from God. They never came under his lordship. They were created, and by being created by God, they were naturally under his lordship. Um, That was not a choice. It's not an option. Um, It's not a democracy. God is a dictator, but he's a good dictator, if you will. Um... He's not worthy of that title because he's pureness and goodness and holiness, um, but it is his world. It is his uh, rule. Uh, and God created Adam and Eve to refrain from eating the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.17. And the fill of the earth and subdue it was in Genesis 1.28. So this required standard was of perfection. It must be perfect. It must be kept without any bit of sin. And of course, the punishment for violation of God's law was death. Now, we know as Christians, this is the, the beauty of, of the gospel. Um, the good news is that though we are dead in our sins, though we are helpless to save ourselves, though even as Christians we fall so far short of the glory of God and sin daily and hourly and, and minutely, if that's a word, um, and we can become so inward focused on our sins that we despair The gospel pulls us out of that, showing us that the righteousness by which we stand before God isn't our own, but it is Christ's righteousness, his sinless law-keeping, perfect obedience, sinlessness that he accomplished in his life on earth is accredited to our spiritual bank account, if you will, covers our law-breaking, or or I should say his perfect law-abiding. We get our law-breaking he got on the cross, and Second Corinthians 5.21 uh, encapsulates that perfectly. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so you have this union with Christ, which covers our sins, washes them away, and also covers us with his righteousness. Um, and that is the heart of the gospel. And anybody who does not know that, I pray that you would read the scriptures and find coverage for your wickedness and your guilt and your sin through the cross of Christ and receive his righteousness and his sinless life by trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior, repenting of your sins, turning to him and following him all the days of your life, studying his word, finding a good church, and uh, serving there faithfully as a part of the body of Christ. Okay, and all that I somehow managed to do in less than 20 minutes, which is going to have to be cut at least in half when I do this tomorrow to get to question 25, which is the main thing that I need to cover tomorrow. Which says, question 25, wherein consisteth the sinfulness of the estate, whereinto man fell? Answer, the sinfulness of that estate, wherein to man fell, consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin. So we are um, regarded as guilty of Adam's first sin. We have that guilt 
the want of that righteousness wherein he was created. We were not created... Um, well, I want to be careful here. It's not as if God created a wicked thing to say that he is guilty of um, wickedness or creating an evil thing. Um, but that by our uh, union with, if you could speak in those terms, by our being the progeny, the offspring of Adam, our very existence from the moment of conception is a fallen one. It is one that is really a... a uh, split off of the wicked body and soul, if you will, of Adam himself. And I know there's different debates on creationism and traducianism, whether, um, you know, our soul is literally uh, Adam's soul just split from him and, and sort of becomes our own. Um, or uh, if, if God creates a new, brand new soul afresh, uh, not really having any um, splitting off of from Adam, if you will, um, um, you know, is this transmitted uh, through natural, you know, generation, uh, sexual intercourse? Is this something completely, you know, not regarding related to that? Um, I, I tend to try to embrace both, to be honest with you, um, that that it is in continuity with Adam's soul, um, but God, of course, is creating it. It's not. Um, you know, I don't think the analogy perfectly works to say that you have, like, say, one candle, and uh, you know, all God does is is if the 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 light, the candle being lit, that's Adam's soul, and because his lit candle is is wicked or fallen, that God just kind of takes that and and uses that one to light another candle with, and then you have that transmitted, and that newly lit candle is now uh, our fallen soul. Um, there may be some help in that uh, analogy. I don't think it perfectly, no analogy does grasp perfectly the transmission of souls and how God does that. And I don't know if we can say perfectly uh, with a great deal of detail without going into just speculation how God um, creates our souls or how it's transmitted. But we do know that we are in Adam, we are of Adam, that we are the offspring of Adam, that there is a real union with Adam, that we are in some ways uh, little Adams, little sinners, little copies of him, um, carbon copies almost as far as our uh, corruption and our sinfulness. And that's body and soul. And uh, again, that's natural. If you have a rotten fruit tree, the fruit from that tree is rotten. Uh, You know, if you take... I don't know a whole lot about fruit, but I, you know, if you take something that's rotten and you try to grow something that's already rotten, it's not going to grow or it's going to be grow corruptly. So we are corrupt offspring of Adam. And that's the want, the lack of original righteousness because we are uh, born corrupt, because we are from Adam who has fallen. Um, and the corruption, um, well, let me, let me back up reading the question, of, uh, the answer to question 25 here. The sinfulness of that estate wherein two man fell consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin. So we inherit that guilt. And because of that also, we have a lack of or the want of that righteousness wherein he was created and the corruption of his nature. So our nature, the very nature itself is corrupted. It's not just that, you know, we have a good nature, but somehow on top of that, laid over that, there's uh, 
uh, a lack of righteousness and a guilt poured on us, but yet at the core of us, we're still good. It's just the external that's kind of dirty from Adam. No, through and through, we have the guilt of Adam, we have the lack of righteousness that Adam had once he fell into sin, and we have the uh, corrupt nature, the fallen dead nature, uh, the spiritual death Adam and he fell into when they sinned. And, and what does this render us? It says in the answer, whereby we are rendered uh, utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from which do proceed all actual transgressions. Uh, so we're wholly inclined to all evil. Again, Romans 3, uh, 9-20 uh, no one does good, we all seek evil, uh, we speak lies and murder and, and all these terrible things. Um, John 8, uh, Christ says, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. So we're constantly, apart from Christ, dead and sinning day by day, minute by minute. Um, and this whole, this whole nature, this disposition, this sinful nature, the guilt of Adam, this lack of righteousness, this is all called, commonly called original sin. Um, and from that, guilt and lack of righteousness and corrupt nature that we have all gotten from Adam proceeds all of our actual transgressions, which is to say all the actual sins that we commit to transgress something, to, to go um, do something we're not allowed to do. If you think of trespassing, you go in a place you're not supposed to go. A transgression is, is uh, doing something, uh, violating something, and in this case, violating God, violating his very character, smearing his good creation ourselves by uh, going against the natures by which he created us with and using our wills to, to bend in a sinful direction. And, uh, of course, now we're fallen and stuck and enslaved in that direction unless he, that sinful disposition, unless he redeems us, renews us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 speaks of this renewal that we must have. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Um, so... Until we're set free from this this hold by Satan and our own sinfulness, the death we have in our trespasses and sins, uh, that that sinful disposition in which we once walked, um, we were made alive out of that. God made us alive from that. We didn't make ourselves alive by the power of our free wills. Uh, there is no free will once we're dead in our sins. God made us alive, and then our wills set free again to serve Him. We do. We repent and believe the gospel. Um, and we were, prior to that time, we did also conduct ourselves in the lust of our flesh, it says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, sinful flesh, sinful mind, fallen mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even children of the devil, scripture says elsewhere, just as the others. Um, we are damnable, we are worthy of damnation because of our sinful disposition. Um, God in his mercy and grace through Christ saves his chosen people from that state. It says, These verses indicate that unless God makes us alive, we will continue to be children of wrath and walk in our law-breaking and our sinful state. Um, our will is free 
as Christians, um, even though we still wrestle with sin, it is now free by the power of God to serve him and to love him. But all that glory and praise still goes to him because it's the spirit that has made us alive and still continually working in us, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But apart from Christ, dead in our sins, without the Holy Spirit, fallen, we have that freedom only to act according to our natures. So we still have a freedom in the sense that um, we do what we want. The problem isn't we can't do what we want. The problem is what we want. What do we want? We want sin. We want all manner of lust and wickedness. And so our wanter is broken. Our capacity to desire is fixed on self and sin and hatred of God. And yeah, we do what we want, but all that we want is sin and evil. So, you know, the, the false straw man, the straw man that is, you know, set up against Calvinism and, and what I would just say is true biblical Christianity that we believe you can be uh, uh, puppeteered by God and that um, as, as a Christian, since I'm a Calvinist, I'm not really doing anything of my own will and unbelievers don't really do anything of their own will. They're just, you know, helplessly uh, victims of God's, you know, forcing them to do something they don't want to do. That's not at all what we're saying. We're saying our fall is so radical that um, all we want is to sin apart from the regenerating work of Christ in our hearts. All we want is wickedness. And so when Christ is offered to an unregenerate man, guess what happens? He rejects Christ. Sure, the parable, parable of the four soils, some initially receive it with gladness, but there's no root in their heart. There's no regeneration in their heart. And so the cares of this world come and choke out the seed, or it falls on, again, stony soil so that there's no depth, there's no root, and uh, uh, yeah, the cares and pleasures of this world choke it out. Um, the devil may take the seed away. And, uh, of course, I'm drawing a wonderful blank on the other uh, there's the shallow soil, there's the soil where it does go more deeply, but the thorns choke it out. In other words, it never bears fruit. Uh, the person is not truly born again. Only those that fall on good soil, those who have, in other words, hearts that are softened and born again, regenerate, receive the, the truth with gladness and bear much fruit, uh, fruit, some 30, some 60, some 90-fold. And uh, there's many implications to that. But the main point is that a true Christian's state is no longer dead and enslaved to sin, but has been uh, renewed uh, by the Holy Spirit and is now bearing much fruit unto God. Not sinless perfectionism by any means, but there is a genuine love for God and fruit that is being born and a continually they are continually being sanctified and growing in, in the holiness of God day by day. Um, let's see here. Okay, so continuing Ephesians 2, our sinful fallen state is seen in that we are born wicked creatures bent on wickedness. We are born with an appetite for sin and revulsion toward righteousness, and this nature and disposition is inherited from Adam. Further, we all used to walk in lockstep with the ways of the devil, and the devil and his demons are, quote, at work among all unbelievers, working in, with, and through their sinful, evil-loving natures to confirm them in their sinful state. Uh, so the question doesn't need to really be, well, is that my sin that wants this, or is that the devil kind of tempting me towards that? Well, the devil works through your sinfulness. It's it's kind of, they go together. Your sinfulness and the demonic temptation influence in that, I, I think, are so mixed and melded together um, that it's, it's you know, you, we don't need to try to parse those two out. Um, the devil and his demons are active in afflicting us, even as Christians. And um, 
as sinners, even as Christians, of our sinfulness in our hearts, um, we're still very prone to giving in to that. So we need to not say the devil made me do it. Um, the devil may be involved in tempting us, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, God has not tempted us above that which we're able to resist. So when we do give in to temptation, uh, it is always uh, our own guilt. Okay. Um, yeah, we are all, or we used to all be in lockstep with the ways of the devil. The devil and his demons are at work among all unbelievers. Um, again, we were children of the devil. Uh, Ephesians 2 2 speaks of that. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. And we all used to walk in lockstep with those who were children of the devil, because we were that, till Christ redeemed us. Thank God that he has raised us up and given us new life and uh, has given us faith as a gift as you continue reading in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So from this radically sinful and fallen state, again, flows all the sins we commit. Even as Christians, uh, we have indwelling sin, the lust of the flesh, the efforts of demonic spirits afflict and tempt us so as to make the Christian life one of spiritual warfare. Galatians five sixteen and following speaks of that, that warfare. And we have to put on the whole armor of God to be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. Uh, other verses that the Westminster divines use to, to support this answer to question 25, James 1, 14 through 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Again, it's our own lust. It's our own guilt, our own fault. It's not God, it's not the devil's, it's our own. We have to bear our own um, responsibility. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death, that spiral downward, temptation internal, external, then the lust, the desiring that, it, it, it's turning and embracing that and wanting that. It conceives, which brings forth sin, and sin, when it actually goes outside of the heart and into action and mouth, uh, words, that pattern encrusted leads to death, physical death, but just a life of, again, misery. All right, Matthew fifteen nineteen. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, all these awful, wicked, terrible things that we've been touching on and hitting on here. Um, all these things pour out of our sinful souls, um, um, sinful hearts, sinful whatever you want to call it. Um, even as Christians, we have to watch and guard our hearts, for it is deceitfully wicked. All right, original sin, <clears throat> excuse me, original sin then is not the first sin of Adam, nor the first sin we commit, but the wicked and miserable natures that we are all born with, and this nature is the core of our being. Um, again, it's inherited from Adam, renders us guilty at birth before God, but it's really and truly our own nature, our own being, and we are held responsible for not only the sins that flow from our fallen natures, but for the fallen nature itself. And it's not like... Um, and it's, yeah, this is touchy. I understand. It's not easy to embrace. And I don't expect to persuade those who are going to be very, um, um, what's the word, upset by me saying this or have never heard of this and think this radical and ridiculous. I can't persuade you probably in one discussion. Just know that there's a lot more that could be said about this. Um, but I don't think at all the Bible teaches that every infant or child or baby that is lost is automatically in heaven if they are, it's certainly not because they are innocent. Um, it's not that babies are innocent until they become come to a point of some age of accountability. Uh, they are born sinners. They are born guilty. 
Uh, as our confession, uh, well, our confession and our larger catechism here says, we inherit the guilt of Adam. That doesn't happen after we commit our first sin knowingly. And by the way, I have a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and almost a one-year-old, and, and I know all of them already <laughs> uh, knowingly sin um, at one level or another. And uh, so even if you want to argue that it happened so early, it's almost uh, a pointless thing to, to, to argue about. But um, say the baby isn't even born, um, it's still in the mother's womb, and you say, well, how can this baby you know, be punished? It, it has never committed any sin. Well, it may have never actually committed a sin in its actual life, but it is accredited with the guilt of Adam's sin, and that's not um, a foreign, uh, unexpected, unnatural thing, no more so than a piece of fruit from a rotten tree would be rotten, right? Um, that's the, the the federal head of Adam that he represents us. We can think of that sort of in uh, governmental terms. Uh, our president, whether we like him or not, uh, our rulers, whether we like them or not, represent us. And we say, well, they don't represent me in that area. Well, they do and they don't, right? I mean, we are a part of this nation. We're, we're bonded together in that regard. Um, maybe we can wiggle away a little bit from that because it only goes that deep that far. Um, but we are all, as human beings, bonded together because we all have the same ultimate parents, Adam and Eve. Um, and so we're all family in that sense. And as I said earlier, we're all carbon copies of Adam, body, and soul. And so it is absolutely natural that we would be born guilty, born sinful. I mean, in fact, it would be unnatural for God to say that we are, um, to, to be the natural offspring of Adam and yet to be born undefiled and without sin. That is not, um, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, in fact. And so we may not like that. I'm not saying that's easy pill to swallow. I'm not saying um, that we are, are you know, doing backflips over that. It's a sad and tragic thing, but it is a true thing. It is um, an understandable thing, though it's a hard pill to swallow. And uh, the, the thing you have to grasp is that there is a genuine uh, brotherhood of man, um, not in a sort of uh, John Lennon... Uh, kumbaya sense uh, uh, that we just all try to you know get along and have peace um, but that, that we actually have a soul connection we're all made in the image of God we all um, come from the same first parent um, Christ again born of a virgin why well so he doesn't have this uh, taint of guilt of original sin upon him he was not the natural uh, union of a man and woman uh, sexual transmission. Uh, he was not from the loins of man in that regard. He, the Holy Spirit hovered and came upon uh, Mary and supernaturally fashioned Christ in the womb of Mary. And uh, that's very mysterious, of course, but it certainly shows us that the natural transmission um, of, of man, of fallen man, uh, has something, I think it's safe to say, to do with the fact that we are born guilty. So if God saves even an infant or a baby in the mother's womb, it is by the grace and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I, I'm very happy to say that I believe that God does do that, um, certainly with children of believers and perhaps with uh, even children of unbelievers. But at any rate... Um, oh yeah, I wanted to make the point, you think of Romans 5, 
teaches us that in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. Obviously, the all there doesn't refer to every single human being, but all that are actually in Christ, all that are born again, all that receive Christ by faith, uh, and have this bond with him, uh, are made alive. And he's the, the, the last Adam, right? He is the representative head of uh, his chosen people. And as all died and all fell in Adam, all will be who are in Christ shall be made alive. That's why the virgin birth is very important to maintain and believe and embrace. Uh, he is a new Adam. He is uh, going to succeed at every point where Adam fell. He is going to keep the law perfectly. He's going to obey the Father perfectly. That's the very purpose for which he was sent. He's going to pay the fine, pay the penalty, pay for the sin of his people, of his elect. And then in due time, he will apply that redemption in their hearts by faith, by the Spirit. They will repent and believe the gospel and be redeemed. Um, but everybody's either represented by Adam or by Christ. By Adam, to re- be represented by him is utterly natural. You know, we say, well, you, you may not like that, that you're represented by Adam, but if you complain against that, and I've said this before too, then you must complain against being represented against Christ. Who wants to do that? Well, we don't, if we're in this plight, of course, of being spiritually dead. But the immediate objection to that I think the skeptic is going to have is doesn't matter uh, I never asked to be of Adam I never asked to be uh, in this situation so yeah you know I'm obligated now to be in Christ to be saved and uh, you know maybe I would want that since I don't want to go to hell and be punished um, but why do I have to be in this position of needing, needing to be redeemed to begin with well there's two answers to that God is the uh, pot maker we are the clay he does what he wants for his glory however he wants and he does that all for good because the highest good is his glory and that brings about much glory and Romans 9 is the um, the uh, what's the fancy Latin term for the, the, the text the classic text the, the perfect text to go to on that um, that is what you need to look at there for that but also as I've already been saying the naturalness of our being Guilty because we are literally the offspring of Adam. That is natural. But to get Christ's righteousness is to go against the grain, is to take a rotten piece of fruit, a dead corpse, and to like hook it up to a living thing, a living being. Jesus Christ and his life and his goodness is so powerful and supernatural that it covers up all our, our death and brings us back to life. Um, you know, it would be as if you could take um, a rotten branch just a dead branch and just sort of um, tie it to uh, a living branch and somehow that living branch start injecting the dead branch with new life and it comes to life again. Uh, that is exactly what the power of Christ does. It's, it's against nature. It's supernatural. It is uh, pure mercy and grace. It's totally undeserved, but it is completely just. It's completely fair. It's completely reasonable that we, being in and of Adam are like fallen Adam until we are in and of Christ covered by him. And so it's not like a one-to-one equation where like, well, yeah, we were of Adam, but we're of Christ. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's grace to be, you know, in Christ. Uh, but, you know, to be in Adam may not seem very fair, but at least God makes up for it by offering Christ. No, it's completely fair and just that we were in Adam. That's natural and reasonable um, to say that we could be born uh, from the natural uh offspring descendants of Adam and not be guilty of sin, not to be corrupt and evil, that would be um, 
against nature, that would be miraculous. That would require an intervention of God, which he's done through Christ, of course, the only way that that could be accomplished. But uh, God would be perfectly just and fair to let Adam and Eve continue to propagate and fill the earth and subdue it uh, for their own sinfulness, and and their offspring would be just like them because it's a copy of them. It's from their loins, their body and their soul, in some sense. Maybe that's putting me more in a sort of tradition camp, Um, not denying that God creates this. But regardless... um, my point is that, and if, if this is any bit of new insight, it's the closest I can give to this, not new insight, but maybe new for me and, and new to what you've thought about it, is uh, that it is natural that we are born dead in sin, and we cannot complain about it one whit. Um, anyhow, that's why we thank God for his mercy and grace that he has saved us and redeemed us, just as the Gentiles are grafted into uh, true Israel, those are the true children of Abraham, uh, unnaturally cultivated in. So we are cultivated, and that true Israel ultimately is Christ himself, right? So we are cultivated into Christ, Jews and Gentiles, even though we were of the rotten tree, if you will, of, of Adam. Um, a few other key points, and then I'm done. This nature that we have is inherited from Adam, rendering us guilty before birth, uh, before God. It's truly our own nature, however. Uh, even though it's inherited, it's truly ours. Um, that's the thing. It's not to say that we are sort of uh, all one soul. No, we're all from one soul. We are, all, we are all of Adam and from Adam. But we become and are uh, our own individual be- uh, beings. I am Thomas Boer, but I am of and from Adam. You are Bob or Sally or whoever's listening. And uh, you are your own being, your own soul. And yet your soul has... Um, uh, I hate to say a past or history. It's not like it was there before it was there. Um, but it's not to say that you were the first human being uh, and, and God set you up as the representative of all your offspring. No, you're in a line. You're in a stream. You're, you're um, a branch from a previous trunk. You're not that trunk. You're not created from scratch in that regard. You're not created from the dust of the ground. You were created uh, from ultimately um, Adam and uh, so you are represented by him. And uh, so, I don't know. I mean, I have to do a lot more thinking about that to flesh that out fully, but hopefully that gets your mind thinking and understanding the justness of God in uh, rendering us guilty. And, and I, I, maybe that's not even the right word to say he renders us guilty. It's just that we're naturally guilty because we're of the offspring of Adam. It's not like God has to sort of, um, again, against nature... Um, charge us with that guilt. Um, um, It's more so to say that if God is truly just, we would have to be guilty because we're from Adam. Oh, if that helps or not. Um, And if I'm somehow embracing some kind of crazy heretical thinking here, then I'm sure I'll be straightened out. (laughs) Um, Another key point, our, our wills are not more essential to us than our natures. Our nature encompasses our wills. Uh, sorry, our willful choices and actions flow out of our nature, right? So it's not like to say, well, yeah, our natures are fallen, but our wills are more fundamental than that, and we can will ourselves out of our own natures. No, we're dead in our sins. Our nature is is the fundamental uh, layer of our existence. We cannot, you know, by sheer force of will, transform that. That's not possible, our will comes out of, grows out of um, our natures. 
And then again, this is why, in order to do good, to repent and believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, we must be born again with new natures, new hearts, with new righteous affections. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six through twenty-seven uh, talks about sprinkling, you know, clean water on us, giving us new hearts, causing us to walk in the steps of God and His law, and uh, causes us to love Him and, and redeem us. That's the power of the gospel and what Christ does in saving us. So then our secular culture denies original sin and says that our problem is not found at the core of our being, but is instead found in what? Well, our life situation, the environment, upbringing, genetic imperfections, even religion, and the ignorant message that we need to be born again to be uh, and do good. In other words, this very gospel message that we need to be transformed inwardly, given new life, new hearts, um, some would say that's a, um, a limitation that's in our way. That's limiting our true potential, our true willpower to just will ourselves out of our uh, wickedness, to overcome our own evil by our own becoming something better than we are. Um, you know, don't believe in this old, uh, wicked, awful, dark view that we are somehow so enslaved or since that we can't do good. Um, you can do good. Just do it and become... Uh, what you're, you know, you're meant to be or whatever. No, um, we cannot become that unless God first works in us. We turn to him crying out that he would make us that. Even as Christians, we turn to Christ daily. We should be at least repenting and asking God, God, please make me holy. Make me more like you. Help me to love your word more, to study it more, to live in light of it more, to proclaim it more. Um, all these things th- so that we would honor you and love you perfectly. Uh, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. For the sake of his kingdom and his glory forever and ever. And on that note, I think I will sum that sum this up. Um, praise God that he redeems us. Praise God that he saves us. And I pray in this new year that you would grow in holiness, that you would study his word, that you would go to church and be edified and fed and, and be part of the body of Christ, contributing as part of that body to the fellow members of his body and being blessed by them. Um, May God be with you and give you peace in this new year. And if you do not know Christ, I pray that you would know Christ so that you can know peace and be forgiven of your sins. Uh, This is Thomas Boer signing off for the Tulip Driven Life.